2: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.
1: You're listening to POP, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Hello and welcome to this extended interview with Lee John, the Imagination frontman. Now, as the main man of Imagination, Lee enjoyed hits in 28 countries with Flashback, Body Talk and Just an Illusion. And in this interview, he talks about a documentary that he's been making about black British music, which is also called Flashback. His life during 80s Britain, his musical influences, the time as a child that he spent in New York, and his first appearance on Top of the Pops. It's a revealing, open and sometimes moving interview, and if you live through the 80s and 90s, you'll recognise some parallels to your own life. And I started by interviewing Lee about his parents.
2: Uh, there was always music in the house. They came from St Lucia, and so therefore we would listen to the music of the day, Calypso, Jim Reeves, Nat King Cole, in any black Caribbean house in the 60s in the UK, that's what they'd be listening to. But my sister was a big influence because she was listening to um, Bluebeat and Scar and Motown and Stax, definitely Stax. And she was into, she liked the Rolling Stones more than she liked the Beatles because she thought they were more edgy. And I remember when I was very, very young, my mom bought me this record I heard on the radio and it was um, uh, You Don't Know by Helen Shapiro. And I just say, Helen Spitero, you know, you know, and I just love that. Well, my love, I love you so, but you don't know. You don't know how much I feel. Da-da-da-da. The melody was in my brain and um, it stayed. That was one of the first melodic musical references. But then I do remember um, that in school, when I was in primary school, another piece of music that got into my brain was Rimsky called Shaharazad which has stayed with me for a long time. Um, And I didn't even realise what the music was until, you know, the the last 30 years I discovered it, we discovered it. And so that was interesting. So at a very early age, it was very diverse. And then um, singing She Loves You and all that kind of stuff. But when I actually started to get into music, one of the first records I actually bought. By that time, I'd, I'd moved to the States. My parents had split, moved to the States. And um, on the corner of, of where we lived was a record shop. So I'd listened to such diverse, soul r and music. You know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't even in my teens yet. And uh, I bought My People Hold On album by Eddie Kendricks. And at that time, Lady Sings the Blues, the first version of that with Diana Ross came out. And um, I got to see the film, I was so impressed by the film, and I wanted to know who this Billie Holiday was. So I read the book, and then every reference in the book, I started to buy the music of these people, like Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Satchmo, um, you know, Josephine Baker. I, I wanted to know all of these people, who they were, and uh, I just soaked it all up. And then at that time, we, you know, I started to listen to people like Isaac Hayes, Hot Bodded Soul, you know, um, <clears throat> this is before the theme from Shaft came out. And then there were the, the vocal groups that were about. Obviously, everybody was into the Jackson Five because you were a kid. My cousins were into that, you know, the Love You Save. And I used to love the Maybe Tomorrow album and, and, and Never Can Say Goodbye. But then I also liked things like, um, is it Laura Lee I listened to? And the, was it the, the Presidents? And one of the local groups, very influential for me in, in a sense, um, just before I came back to the UK was called, a group called Black Ivory and they had a, a song called um, Don't Turn Around Don't Turn Around da, 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 da. It was a very falsetto type sound and uh, they had another track called You and I have an understanding which was a beautiful, beautiful song and um, at that time all the, it was a time of the temptations and all these other groups the shy lights, the stylistics um, but I was mainly Influenced, I think, by Motown because I saw something that I could be. I would, I could be a four top. I could be a supreme. I could be a Jackson Five. I could be a. I could be all of these people, all in one person. Because the fact is, they were doing it, and they put it on such a heavier stage. Um, But then I also loved people like Aretha Franklin. You know, I love the gospel side of stuff. And one of my favorite all-time versions of "You're Only to Get By" was by Aretha. And I gravitated to, always wanted to know who wrote the songs. So I found that was Ashlyn Simpson. So then that connects me with Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. And, I, and then I became a fan of Ashlyn Simpson at a very early age. I bought all their albums um, and till the point where, for me, the favorite album they did was Stay Free, Nobody Knows, this is like the late 70s into the 80s. And, you know, I just loved how they combined being in the soul pop into with the element of gospel with it. <clears throat> and then, you know, I loved all the divas and stuff like that. But one of my favorites was Natalie Cole. And I got to meet her in the mid seventies. I was writing for a magazine, not magazine. It was the Caribbean times. And um, a friend of mine and myself, we managed to go to Capitol records, which was EMI in London. And, um, this, this lady, Debbie Bennett, who was always involved in press and promotions, she managed to give us a white label of the very first Natalie Cole album, and which has some wonderful songs. So, you know, I was just a fan from then on, you know, and she had so many hits. And, she, and I think about Natalie, she was so diverse with her style of music. She did jazz, blues, soul, gospel, pop. And that's what I thought for myself, that's where I want to be. You know, I want to be able to be very diverse in the things that I do. So even when I formed imagination, it was, that was my main thing I really wanted to do.
1: Can I take you back just a second though, before we get to that area? Because the one thing that really fascinated me in a way, because I come from a family of of parents that also split, is that Mm. you lived with your father, which is Mm. pretty Mm. unusual. What was the relationship with your parents and do you think that part, because I think for me, part of my drive in life came from needing my father to love me in some way. Mm -hmm. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I always felt that my father didn't love me and I think he didn't really. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there 's lots of probably say that and, mm. uh, and and I think there was a drive, and I just wondered because when ever you, you know whenever I talk to really famous people there's they mm. have this mm. drive in their life to achieve something, and particularly early on, and that drive comes from an early age and I just wondered if you'd ever analyzed where your drives oh, yes. may have come from
2: Well, my mum and my sister were very strong influences my mum's always been working in the community, the black community in the u k and she's you know she's an MBE she worked half her life and my sister was also involved in in arts to the, to a degree and when she went back to St Lucia she was in, involved in charity and I grew up in a household where you couldn't be lazy you, you know you can just sit down and say okay you know when I left school that's it you know even though if I wanted to be a singer I still had to be doing something do a job and then and then you know in the nights you could still sing you could do this and that so um But prior to that, when my father took me to America, he actually didn't tell my mother. So he literally, um, they split by that time. And he kind of um, uh, took me on this long voyage on the SS France, the longest ship in the world at that time, took me to America. And we were on it for like two weeks. In those days, they took a long time to get to across the ocean. And my mother had no idea where I was until she got a postcard. So there was always that longing that, you know, I want to see my mom. You know, where is she? You know, and 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 with that, with the memory of of what I loved of England and stuff, there was a smell, there was a sense, there was colours. Then when I went to New York, <clears throat> it was a, it was like going into Disneyland. It was completely different. Um, as a as a, a young black guy coming from the UK, I just saw so much of people of me. I saw my own reflection. I saw it in in so many different ways, and I thought I could do, I could do, I could probably do da 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 to the point I got signed to a, la- a label that my father's wife um, pushed me to go into, but my father didn't know. And, uh, and I won the audition and then I recorded a few demos when I was very, very, very young. Um, and, you know, I-, I remember singing for them, is it Close to You or something like that? And Me and Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin. For some reason, I, I love that song. And um, that's how diverse the radio was and stuff. But when you talk about my father, he came from a background where they didn't show that affection to their children when they were growing up. When I was younger, yeah, but as we grew up, he was like, um, he just expected me to to win the swimming um, meet. You know, um, I joined track uh, school, you know, expected me to get, you know, you just expected it, you know, but I didn't feel like if like, um, I was always trying to prove myself. And to the point where there was a moment when imagination became successful when I came back to America after coming back to the UK. And he turned and he said to me, um, which was very, very, it cut me in two was that, um, oh, if I didn't send you back to England, maybe none of this would have happened. Instead of saying, "Wow, son, you've done really well. Look at you!" da 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 da, and afterwards, and uh, right from that moment on, I thought, "I don't need you. I'm I'm bigger and badder and better, and I don't need you. I can get on and do it myself." You know, you've provided me a platform of birth, but I can now move on and do my own thing. And even before he passed away, he passed away in two thousand, he was very much still thinking that what I did was. A job, but the real job was come back to Saint Lucia, look after the land, look after the property. That's where you should be, you know, should be doing. But when he passed away, in his belongings, I found all my albums. Oh wow! And it was like you know, you know, and he, but he'd been talking to other people about me. That was the situation, but he would never do it to my, I think, in my face. But I think he was brought up in that Victorian sort of, you know, this English tradition. Um, which was passed down to the Caribbean of not really praising your children. You know, a lot of them, you, you know, they're, they're not so they're they're perfection.
1: maybe. Because, I mean, I think when you listen to your voice and when you listen to your music, it is very much of perfection. It's very much, you know, like you have this feeling, wow, he's, he's really going for it here completely. And it's funny because I read about Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, who was an absolute perfectionist in arranging and everything, that his father never, ever told him that he was any good at everyth- anything. And so he spent mm. his whole life looking for that confirmation. And it's mm. sort of a similar confirmation. I wonder if that sort of led you to to actually say, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove. There was a moment, obviously, where you stopped doing that, where you stopped saying... Oh, yeah, I, I
2: mean, I, s- I still do, in a sense, in myself. I still try and be a perfectionist. I still try and be the best of what I do. I still think I'm still learning, you know, and that's what led me to technology and stuff like that. And I thought, God, I don't know as much as them. I need to learn a little bit more. I need to learn a little bit more. I, need, I don't know those dance steps. So well. I, need, need I can't do that anymore. You know, I'm older now, so I can't do this. So, all right, I need to do that. But I've always felt that I needed to be the best of what I do. And um, so like with all the, the imagination songs, Lee Johnson, I did, I did all my backgrounds, all my harmonies, you know, Ashley would come in on a few bits. Uh, but mainly I remember meeting Freddie Mercury and he was just stunned and astounded that how I did my arrangements. So he was saying he was, because he had to pay all the chords to do the vocals, but I just did it all in my head. You know, I'd be in the studio and I'd go, we'd be talking and I'd do the harmony, they'd do harmony. And, you know, and I was always very, very quick. Like our first album was done like, maybe two, three weeks, you know, and writing. And i would written songs from before, which we put in there. So I always had this aptitude of, um, and I loved harmonies. And one thing I can always say, I never thought I was good enough. That's one of the things I always, because prior to Imagination, I was uh, was gigging, I was doing working men's clubs, uh, the Caribbean clubs, the bingo halls, pubs, it was fantastic, the great audiences, it was a great training ground. And then I was also in the studio doing background vocals for this one and then doing a few demos here. And they were never quite right. I'd go to this a r guy and say, what do you think? What do you think? I said, Lee, it's, it's okay. You're getting there. You're getting there. I was never quite getting there until I did this demo with um, Trevor Horn. And he had hired me and another girl called Sonya Jones. I don't know if you know Sonya Jones. Sonia Jones is, was one of the main big session singers back in the 80s and 90s. She, she did loads of things, but she's very well known that people don't even realize it's her, <clears throat> imitating a Shirley Bassey isk sound on the soundtrack of Life of Brian. She's the one that says Brian, baby called Brian, and uh, Little Welch Girl. And we were starting together doing our sessions, and it was really cool. And we did the track called Cuddle Up and Hold Me Tight for Trevor Horn for Eurovision. We weren't going to sing it. It was somebody else going to do it and i did one called taste the wine or something anyway he liked the tone of my voice he kept saying i sounded like a young johnny mathis which i thought oh my god no johnny mathis that's my mum that's you know oh god i mean i grew to love johnny mathis's sounds as i grew older but then i thought oh my god and the second person who said i sound like johnny mathis was diana ross we were doing a tour and somebody said oh i was with diana ross and she heard you record and she says, you sound like johnny mathis I'm like, ah, ah. you know but it was that situation at least I was being compared to a legend, so, you know. But um, the Trevor Horn scenario got me into the studio with him, and he was working with, I think, Jeff Downs from Yes, I think, were, Yes, I think, and before Buggles. And um, we were in a studio in Camden Town, if I recollect, and we did a, a couple demos, one called Stand Up and ja- Dance, Dance, and one called Dr. John. Which is, you know, I got the medicine, which was very pseudo disco, but it was like um, it wasn't very good. It was very We were experimenting a lot. Um, and then I didn't like what I did because um, it didn't sound right. So I redid the whole vocal again and called it It's My Life Changed. That's when I knew you could always change the version of the song and people wouldn't know. And um, <clears throat> and then. He called me back and said, Look, I've got this other song. I want you to try it out. Um, maybe you can add in something to it. So I heard it and it was this big production. And I thought, bloody hell, this is really cool. And at that time he was, I think it was going out with Tina Charles. Um, and so she was um I, I think she's on the song a little bit. It's called Got to Be Good. And it just had all this production. This is like early Trevor Horn. And um it was it was it was so visual when you hear the song on the bass and everything like that. And then um, I forgot about it and put it, you know, put it aside. And then he grew, he got big. I think that's eight, 79, 80 with the Buggles. Video Kill Radio, started to yep. blew up. And um, so somehow or the other, somebody recommended me to go to R&B records. It wasn't R&B at the time, it was Red Bus Records. And Morgan Khan, who had been a, he was doing a bit of everything, DJing and, and promoting records for PRT distributors in in um, in Marble Arch in London. Um, I, he was crazy. I thought I was wild, but he was crazy. He was like, "Man, I want to get this." He played me all these records and said, you know, "I want a track like this." Da 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 da. and played me all these music, and um, they're all from America. So then I said, "You know what? I may have a song for you." So I brought the cassette down left left it with him he called me back in a few days and said i want i want this song i want this to be the first song on our label you know it was supposed to be a lee john record there was no imagination so um i said that was body talk was it was that no this was um got to be good
1: oh okay just to just to go back to a couple of things because i don't want to jump too far ahead the when you talk about the working man clubs and actually like having to do what people like Elton John did, which is he did mm. it in the 70s, which was learn his craft by mm. cl- endlessly playing clubs. Um And you did the same. And what's interesting about people like you is that there's a moment where it all comes together. There's a moment like, I don't know if you've ever seen Michael Jackson at the 25th anniversary of Motown. And suddenly yes, yes. Michael Jackson does the moonwalk and he's Michael Jackson finally. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's he's a, he's a yeah. 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 Adele at the Brit Awards when she did Someone oh. Like You and, and, and you just feel that moment. And you go, wow, that's, everything's come together at this time. Yeah. And then suddenly, yeah. It, suddenly it works. What, do, what did you learn from those clubs, do you think, that really added to becoming legion of imagination. I learned about the audience.
2: I was with the Sun Valley Serenaders uh, at the George Canning Pub on a Wednesday Thursday night, and then in the rest of the week, I was a singing waiter, singing um, songs from the West End. where the waiters of call we sing and dance to we'll give you more than any other supper pub in town with Gary Shell and a singer called an actress called Tammy Jacobs and Sally Temple and. Um, Steve Armley. I'd love to track these guys down now, I really would. And we had a, 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 a we were on the front pages, I think, of, yeah, of the second, second page of the Evening Standard of this place called Encore. So I was doing that and then dash away at, at, at in, no, I, I do the George Canning pub between seven and 10, rush down to Brixton, dash to Encore, change up and get ready to do the midnight show. So what did you learn from the audience then?
1: What was it specifically? Learning
2: from the audience was that don't be afraid of them, number one. And also, if you are yourself, they will embrace you. And also, how to interpret different songs. Because I was singing everybody else's songs. I was doing reggae. I was doing calypso. I was doing um, uh, the songs of the day. um, And until I started writing my... I was always writing my own material. But... Um, I mean, for example, the bingo halls were the greatest audiences because you did three little spots, and I loved it. And you know, you get the old ladies coming up and giving you, "Hello, love, would you like a drink?" Hello, you know. And, oh, here's a little fiver. And, you know, and um, if my mates came to see me, they'd drink up all my 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 savings, all my um, earnings. You know, because uh, they'd say, "Oh, put it on his put it on his tab." But it was like those bingo halls had like sometimes like two thousand people because there were old theaters. And so it was like, wow. So I learned how to experiment. I learned about how to, you know, how to experiment with my, my the way I dressed, um, how I threw my voice. I learned um, to to just the communication and what, how you, you knew when you were singing, like I'd sing Daddy's Home, how to melt someone's heart, you know, by singing that song and how to do it and just capture someone, someone would go, ah. Oh. Tell me, how, how, how do you melt someone's heart? <laughs> me. When you sing that song, when you sing Daddy's Home, it's going to melt someone's song. Cause it's, be, <laughs> You're my love. it's the melodies, you know, it's the melodies. Of, it's, it's really hard nowadays because some of the songs you hear nowadays are so electronic and sound like computer games with with vocals on top of it that you don't, they forget that it, the, the strongest songs that hit you, even like Body Talk, there's a melody, you know, and you can remember those melodies that stay with you forever those classic songs and and that was the thing um because I was also doing um uh, uh I, was, I was going to Anna Shear's acting school I was doing stuff like that and trying to I wanted to be the best of what I did so I was trying to really you know make sure my craft I knew every area you know um and I even did uh, I got panto but not panto but like theater thing I played Brera and Nancy the Spider-Man and um <clears throat> and that was with actually the musical director was um chris cameron who was the uh, who became one of the main musical directors for george michael um at one point i was in three groups at one point yeah i was d- doing fizz which was a jazz funk group um sun valley serenaders and something i can't remember who the other ones but with Fizz, we were doing all these college and university gigs and they were like young guys and um myself by this time i had ashley uh, on board playing bass and um we did the casio college and george michael's band um i can't remember the name they were supporting us so i thought wow i'm big time now you know supporting us and um i remember andrew Ridgeley and i think dave david austin i think were were you know we were all backstage and stuff like that and but by this time I was very seasoned. I thought I was quite seasoned because I'd done encore. I'd done all these gigs. I was really, I had this professional thing. I knew where the next step was gonna go, you know, and I knew what was not me by that time. And um, I always wanted to prove that I was a live artist. Even now, today, you know, it's, it's just about getting on the stage and just delivering.
1: We just want to take you back to, to what you said about america and i find that really interesting that you said it was the first time that you were somewhere where you had this mirror to you so there were these black groups out there and so you could see um people doing something that you wanted to do as opposed i presume written not completely but i would have think would have thought that the perspectives for a black person of you know of our age back then uh it wasn't good, it wasn't easy. No, I mean, um, no, because basically, you
2: know, I, I was lucky, my primary school at Gillespie was multiracial and it was very mixed. So it had Greeks, Turks, Asians, you know, everyone. It was, and people from different Caribbean and Finsbury Park. It's one of the first really big multiracial schools. And I went back to that recent, not a couple of years ago to, and saw my ex-teacher, And she told me how, you know, it was in the papers, how multiracial it was, the community was. But at the same time, there weren't black shop owners, to be honest with you, there weren't black teachers. Um, It was just, people of power weren't in, I didn't see myself in that reflection. And there were very, very few black artists at the time, unless you saw them doing, Calypso or Scar, um, that sort of genre. But the genre I liked, in particular was soul, always was, was from America. So when I landed in America, all of a sudden, it was like, wow, the Jackson 5 had broken by the time I got there. And My cousins were saying, you don't know the Jackson 5? I mean, I got there by the time Once uh, Your Back came out. By the time I got there, it was The Love You Save. So they were like, into, stop, stop, Better save me. It was all that, you know. So it was very... Um, unusual because you had the Jackson five, but then you had groups like war by love that became one of my main groups. that I really loved Eric Burden's war. Um, And then at the same time I was in America, there was the assassination of Robert F Kennedy. And the month before that I think was Martin Luther King. So it was a very heavy racial time and the black Panthers. I remember on each corner, you had these, shabazz um bean pie places and and they had these um shops that w- would have joysticks and posters and it was very you know i'm black and i'm proud and it you felt this kind of hey you know something's really it was it was a, a, a proud moment to be and see history changing and then bam Isaac Hayes wins the Academy Award. Bam, you've got um, Diane Carroll on TV with Julia. Bam, you've got Flip Wilson with his TV show, comedy show. Um, Melvin Moore and Clifton Webb had a summer special, you know, and it, everything was notable. Why I know the names is because they were so relevant. Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, everybody in the school, talking about the fight of the season. You know, the Temptations dance routines, we all wanted to, to look like and wouldn't be the Temptation because they were slick and they were classy. You know, so it was like, and I was still very young. So it was it was so diverse. And then you, know, you had the jazz musicians like Miles Davis and stuff really freaking out and Herbie Hancock and stuff. I mean, but then, I mean, I got into a lot of the instrumental music cause I was always a clubber when, by the time I came back here and got into the whole club scene, the whole, you know, UK black club, soul and reggae, you know, those two sides, I was part of all of that. And, um, but in America, it was all there. And when I came back, it was like cold soup. You know, I was watching Slade and Sweet and Gene Genie. And I thought, what the hell is this? And, and and was it Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep? That just drove me absolutely bananas. I thought, and I was sitting in school, but and the records that I had were really heavy. So, you know, I had, um, I remember I brought with me the Midnight Movers and Follow the Wind. And it was a really heavy track. and um, And I, of course my, Eddie Kendricks album, which had "Girlie, the Change of Mind," which is like a classic floor filler,
1: but it was um, so diverse.
2: It so, was you so, found, so you found you found that
1: music again only in black clubs. You oh yeah,
2: in, and, and import right. import. You go to Contempo, which was um, in Hanway Place, Hanway Street, in 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 just off Oxford Street, or we go to One Stop, which was uh, which not a lot of people even remembered, which was like. I think we used, it was classical, but then all of a sudden they started to have a section where they'd have jazz, funk and soul. And you can go into a little booth and sit down and listen to the record. And I had my, remember I always had a cassette tape recorder. Everybody knew me, had no, I'd have a, a Panasonic cassette tape recorder and I'd tape some of the tracks that I was listening to. Or I'd go to Cheapo Cheapo in, in, uh, in Rupert Street and you get the same album there, but cheaper. Like instead of 15 pounds for two pounds. And, you know, but I was an avid record buyer, you know, cause I just loved the music. And then while at school, when I came back from the States, um, I was just wanted to know what was going on. And my cousin took me to like my first blues in um, called Bluesville actually it was in, in Turnpike Lane. And it was heavy dub, heavy reggae, which was cool. Wall to wall dreadlocks. And, you know, we, was, we were lying and saying, oh, we're going to the pictures, the cinema. But we weren't, we were going to this club and so I'd go there for a while and I thought, you know what, this is okay, but they'd only play one soul record, I can't, I couldn't dance, it was always very, very dark and and so therefore, I don't know who it was, it was somebody who said, "Oh, you've got to come down to this club on a um, on a Friday uh, lunchtime, I said lunchtime, god, we were at school, but normally on a Friday lunchtime, they'd have a half day, so you could go home at, on the, in the fifth year, I think it was. And we discovered Crackers, where George Powell was playing and Mark Roman, the DJs. And I saw like-minded people there. Also people that then went into groups like like the World, Central Line and Lynx. Everybody used to go down to Crackers. And it became, there were people there like Trevor, Trevor, um, Trevor Shakes, who was one of the top dancers, and Leon Herbert, who became a big actor and dancer. And he's actually doing a documentary on dancing of that period and we just followed them and we became a whole posse and we went to birds nest waterloo and paddington and west Hampstead, and charlie browns and which was in turnpike lane because they didn't really allow a lot of the black guys who were in posses to go into central london they if you were older there was um clubs like columbos and um oh, mr b's um Oh, crap. Q Club, which was more, in actual fact, um, Q Club later on in my life, when we started to gig, we did gigs in Q Club. Like I saw Eddie Grant, and Eddie Grant, you know, um, congratulated me and said, you know, you managed to hold the audience. This is before imagination again. So, and all of what I've just talked about was pre imagination. So it was, um, as far as I could remember, there's always been a musical thing about me and what what it was everybody used to say and even yesterday i spoke to leon herb and he said every time he thought he thinks of me he thinks of when he me. i was always singing i was always i was always singing and and and, and screaming at the top of my voice on the echo in the underground <clears throat> you know and um it was just trying to prove yourself, trying to be, you know, I thought I'm not as good as that person. I want to try and be as good as that and refine it and will I get there, you know.
1: So how um, did, did that come around? How did that actual start with when you went into EMI and you did an impromptu uh... oh that was way before that that, well, that was that was way before,
2: that was years before. I mean, when we went into when I went into EMI, it was I became a duo while I was still at school um and that that was really i think the start of my career in say recording we in, in, it was um mid 70s and um a good friend of mine Russell fraser is not with us now well he's, he's passed you know god bless him he's very fondly missed and he was very much into motown the jackson five diana ross and everything so we're doing all our dancing machine and it's like doing routines and stuff inside and writing so he, but he wanted everything fast he wanted everything fast and quick but we were very determined because we ended up in some places when i think back how did we get there i remember we went down to um we we had a list of all these different studios and we went to um eddie grant studio in Els Bolston road in Soap newington and he gave us advice And at that time, there was four of us in the group. There was going to be, there was was four of us, but the others were not really serious. And um, then we went down to Eddie Grant's record company in Tin Pan Alley. And we saw all these studio, all these people, you know, found names and other. And then I remember we found ourselves at Island Records when it was just starting out in Hammersmith to the point where they were still building things and um, we, we, we just wanted to do, um, we had all our songs, not with any music, just a cappella with the songs. And um, they said, look, you've got something going, but you, you, the normal thing, come back, come back. And then we, we still determined again, so we went to EMI and we were in the reception and we looked up and thought, God, this is the picture where the Beatles were, you know? And so we went into the reception and, and no lie, it was like something out of an MGM film. We go to the reception, sitting there and this guy um is is they're watching us with glasses on he has got all this thing and i'm saying I bet he's a manager But he's a manager you know you know it's about him so it's, yeah so we just went straight and said like um do, do you manage says, yes i manage a manager group da, 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 da. he turned out to be his name was roy fisher and he managed the spiders of mars which is david bowie's backing band and they had just got this big deal with emi and he has his record label, which is which is going to be connected to EMI. He he said to us, Well, what do you do? So right in the reception, reception in front of everybody, we just sang and danced in front of everybody. Our songs we made up. You know, so everybody was like clapping and stuff like that. And he was like, Okay, you know, I like you guys, you know, really come to my um to, to, to my office in Wimpole Street. So went to his office in Windpost Street and he said, like, I'd like to do deal with you, but you're underage. So your parents have to sign. So um, they went to my mom and hit, uh, Russell's mom and dad and stuff. And we signed and stuff like that. Went in the studio. Um, we wrote one song called One Life to Live. And the other song was written by Dennis Bond. It was called Get Up, Part One, Part Two, um, which was... But the, the funny thing about it was my memories... Well, we went down. It was in South Milton Street, Mayfest Studio. Mayfest Studio on the left-hand side. There was a place called Was it Rockies or something? And uh, oh, had the I, when I used to eat meat, they had these big hamburgers and rock, and and nickelbocker Glories and and we were going to the studio to sing and we we're eating all this food. And then we went to the because <laughs> Ross was like, "Oh my God, how am I going to sing these notes?" When in the studio. Oh I know exactly. <laughs> um, and There were live musicians there. We had Thunder Thighs, the backing singers, and they sang on Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. And we had Phil Chang, who I think he played for Rod Stewart. Um, And Del Newman produced it. And Newman was a big producer and arranger for Diana Ross, for McCartney, loads and loads of people. Um, But we didn't know how big they were at the time. I just, afterwards, I had to do all my research, but I remembered all the names. That was one thing. I always used to look on every album cover to see who did what. So I'd always pick up on the name. Russell wasn't always so much into that, but I was always into that. And anyhow, um, I think we recorded the record. The um, record company tried to put it out or something happened and they changed names and it became word of mouth. And then doing us back in the studio and it became a shambles. It would, nothing happened. I thought we, what I say to people, I think we got to number two in Finsbury Park. (laughs) But it was a wonderful experience. I didn't find it negative because from it, I was learning how to record my voice in the studio, um, do harmonies. Um, I got my own tape machine and stuff like that. So I started to experiment a lot at home. You know, I had a TAC thing and, um, so Akai, kind of, sorry, it's an Akai thing I had. So um, I was learning, trying to learn my craft. And that to me was so important. Russell was more into how much we we're going to get, you know, to this and the other. And, and we found ourselves in so many wonderful experiences, watching so many people. You know, um, we got to do interviews when we were that summer at West Indian World, and we interviewed the brothers Johnson so of all people. We managed to sneak into the Inn on the Park Hotel. And interviewed Diana Ross in the lift. Coming down in the lift, we got to see Doris Troy, and then she asked us to come on stage with her to dance. Doris at the Rainbow Theatre with Madeline Bell, so who I who's now a good friend. There's so many little stories that led up before imagination. So by the time I did the um, the um, The what's his name again? Um, Got to be good. The track with um, um, Trevor Horn. Um, I had had these wonderful learning experiences, all diverse, all different, all very colourful. I was even I I, the other day I even forgot, and I said to somebody, I um, after Marcel left, Marcel King left uh, left Sweet Sensation. I was offered the job to be the lead singer of Sweet Sensation you know, but I turned it down because I'd seen them at the Lyceum. And I thought, oh, great. And I thought, I don't want to replace, you know. And I was very much into, I'd studied the industry by then. And I knew a little bit about.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
2: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a
0: thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: With groups where they were going where they weren't going. I mean, I ended up doing a lot of sessions with um, um, an American, American um, session musician. So we worked with the Bell Ballettes and Delphonics and Chairman of the Board, the third or fourth member or who, who formed their own version of it. So I was, I was always the main backing vocals for each of these groups. And we'd go to all the army bases and it was great. It was fantastic. So it gave me a lot of experience and also, I, I, you know you, you, you actually know what you want to do next. So the next step going into the frying pan was when I went to r and and took Got To Be Good. And um, they took the master tape of the track, sent it to America, and lost it. It got lost. This is supposed to be my first record coming out, got lost, and this is all the big hoopla, oh, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. So I didn't trust them. So they thought, "Oh my God, you know we've got this artist here, and you know what we're going to do so the next thing um, was I met Tony Swain because um, Ellis Elias, one of the directors, had said um, i've got a tape, and you and I think this, you could write something. I like your writing. Um, this could be something you could write on, so I thought, okay, mm. now, another reason why." I didn't really trust the record company was Spinning Back. Two years before, I was in Wardour Street and I went to a company there with some of my demos and they liked me then. Um, I met Manny, the brother of Ellis, and he wanted me to sing a track which they gave to Kelly Marie, who became a number one hit. But the track they played was something Stranger or something of the other than Paradise or something like that. I remember it really well. And Manny doesn't even remember, but he met me then. But I wasn't too sure because they had Jesse Green who did Nice and Slow, and that was a hit. But I didn't see a lot of artists like myself. I didn't, I wasn't too sure. And anyway, I went off doing something else and forgot. I think became Singing Waiters, to be honest with you. And then I, I thought forgot about that, then I, I give it a break. But then what happened was going forward, um, I got the cassette that uh, Ellis Elias had given me with the music that Tony Swain had put on it and I listened to it and I thought this is interesting and I started to write some lyrics and a melody and I uh, used one of my cassette machines and another machine and started overdubbing my voice and stuff and um, I said to um, Morgan I want to come into the studio I've got a song and uh, he said which one I said the song that Tony's given me so I said, okay, you know, you've got the time. I said, well, I'm going to bring a friend of mine in it with me because, you know, so you guys have messed me up already once and I'm not going to mess about, you know. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to form a group. So therefore, if the group flops, it's not going to screw up my solo career. And that's, that's how cool. really, that's how imagination really started. And so therefore I called Ashley in and we have I was into Ashford Simpson so heavily, I said, "Let's try and do like an Ashford Simpson sort of style on on this track," which I now became, which became Body Talk, which was late '80 when I wrote it. And then we recorded it. We rehearsed and rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. We didn't record the the, the vocal straight away in the studio. Um, Tony and, and Morgan were like, "Wow, this sounds really, really cool," but I wasn't recording. I was just singing over the track and doing all the backgrounds and the ideas and stuff. And they said, look, could you record something? So I thought, all right, yeah. We hadn't signed anything. So that's why I was like thinking, well, we haven't signed a deal yet. Why am I gonna record it? You know, I was thinking the business side. Anyway, we recorded it all in one take. We did the two, one take, that was it. Morgan was like saying, that's it. You don't need to do another version. And we just did the backgrounds. And then we had it and and Tony was the same. So, they then took that and put it on an acetate and took it through all the clubs and they worked and tweaked it and pushed up the bass and stuff and uh, heightened the vocal and everything like that. And people, because it, it was very hypnotic, it had uh, an element of jazz, it had an element of funk, there was even a, a, an aesthetic of reggae in the field in a sense as well, in the, in the bass and the heaviness. Um, and a class with the sense and the, and the difference of vocal tones and everything. Um it embraced the DJs because we're just coming out of disco. There was a funk thing coming up, but it was not one tw- wasn't 120, 130 bpm now. It was coming down to 115 110, 109, those kind of tracks, but they still had a, a beat, a groove to it. So we were coming right back to that kind of funk feel that they had in the early 70s, but now in the 80s. And um, you know, and then um it all started. It basically, we started to do all the clubs, went out to all the different clubs, and then midway, um, they were asking me, well, what do you want to do? Are you going to be a solo artist or a group? So I said, all right, well, we, we'll probably, let's try and do something like Police in the look. So I would auditioned with another band called Midnight Express and Errol Kennedy was the drummer. So I liked how he played, because he, he listened to how I was singing, how I was moving, because with me when i'm on stage um it's very important that the drummer is aware of my body movements because if i'm dancing if i'm doing a certain thing whatever it's all interlinked so the bass the drums the keyboard everybody's looking at because i'm doing certain accents and stuff like that so it's so important and movements you know the body has a lot you know can express a lot when you're talking music you have to really be into it and a lot of people don't realize this so he was really good at that. Um, understand it's a jazz thing as well, because I love jazz. So we got him on board. Body Talk was going through all the different clubs everywhere. Um, number one, every r and chart, soul chart, and decided to do interviews and everything like that. And um, walking down Tottenham High Road one day. Um, somebody from the house I was sharing because I'd left home by this time because I thought, well, it's time to be the musician, be on your own. Said, You've got a phone call at home. The record company's trying to g- get hold of you. Where are you? Where are you? This is pre mobile. So I phoned them and they said, um, Oh, we're number 44 on the chart. Said, oh, fantastic. Oh, great. Oh, and I just thought, Well, that would be it because at those times you didn't push Black British music at all. They would come in and come out, and that was it. Two records, boom. And um, so I thought, okay, cool, that's good. And then next day, I got a call saying, you may be on Top of the Pops because the group has fallen out. So I think, you know, be prepared. So um, I thought, okay, I thought nothing of it, I thought. Then I got another phone call saying, Lee, where are you? You're supposed to be here at the company so as to, so as to discuss what we're gonna do for Top of the pop." I said, you said you may be on Top of it. You, you didn't say we were on it. He said, yes, you are on it. <laughs> so everything went crazy cabs organizing what we're going to look like the whole concept you know this arabic sort of uh, you know ethereal sort of look with a theatrical sensibility but still being kind of show business but um and then morgan was very crucial to <clears throat> saying you've got three minutes on tv you've really got to push it you've got to let people remember you you can't be the four tops or you know those groups that are stand and do nothing people have to be talking about you the next day so on my shoulders, I had all this weight. And at the same time, I'm on the show that as a kid, as families, we'd all be watching. We'd be sitting in front of TV, watching it, dreaming that we'd be on this show because it was the mainstay of, of of British TV on a Thursday night or Wednesday night. Yeah, Thursday night. Thursday,
1: yeah.
2: yeah. And um, the rehearsals, are, and that, that I think, um, what you said previously about when you work and work and work and work and work and, work and, you're, in it and you, you're, you're rehearsing life and the moment where we went over top of the Pops had been part of that whole rehearsal. So by the time I actually got to perform that, I was re- very prepared. I knew I had to be in a certain frame of mind, a certain discipline. Because we had to repeat things over and over and over for the cameras, for this, for that, you know, and I had to be reduplicating everything. So, you know, I had to be really professional and tight in what I was doing each time. Um, and, and as I said, there's a lot of discipline. And then finally, the final filming session was in the evening, and that was like remarkable. It was.
1: Is that my cat? Oh.
2: My cat's trying to get in. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. Skippy? Yeah, it is you? Come on, come on, come on. He's he had an he um he's um had a a societis. Oh no.
1: Yes, didn't you? Yes, didn't you? So he's got a little. You can see here. All right, it should be it should be gold lame, really. Though. I know <laughs> that was in the eighties. <laughs> to the story, that was in the eighties. That... I mean, one of the the, the, the one of the most uh, remarkable things is that, and what you're saying is that that moment, because it was so exciting in lots of different ways, from this visual, mm. you know, amazing look, which you all had to, to the music and to, mm. also you know, the, the type of song it was was so original. It just felt so original at that time. And, um, and I think it was that, that combination was what exploded you in, mm. in, in terms of that moment of success. How did that moment of success change your life? And was it everything that everyone dreams of? Because a lot of artists go, you know, when I'm famous, my life's gonna be okay.
2: <laughs> mm, mm, mm.
1: Was it that, or is it more complicated?
2: Ah, it's a bit of both, because, you know, we still, you know, like, um, and someone was telling me about this the other day, they were saying, okay, you know, we were broke, we didn't have any money, da 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 da. And I, at this point in time, I was surviving because, you know, I literally was in three or four bands. So even though I did Top of the Pop, I always had this realistic thing that, how am I going to maintain, how am I going to keep myself together? to the point where even though we've done it because you know the next day and everything you know i was thinking well i may have to go back and sign on the dole you know because i hadn't signed on the dole throughout my my period of of, of, of grafting only six months prior to that a friend of mine said why don't you sign on the dole you can get some money and i thought oh really <laughs> you know i so, said because you're not earning and um, the record company said no, no, no. So we need to put you on a, 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 a wage or whatever like that, so you can you know can keep things going. But the life changed. It, it changed to a, a level where from 1981 till 1989, I'd even say it was work nonstop. It was work. It was re- It was like it was all about the work. It all it was work, 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 and, and writing and creating and um at that point in time if you were in the newspapers you sold records so you know they put ridiculous things in the in the newspapers and stuff and that was basically to sell records um and even if you didn't want to do it you'd have a press person or somebody who'd make something up or whatever to sell records i mean now it doesn't make any difference but that was what was part of the the game and also um we became pillars in the community because there was all of a sudden everybody thought we were american to start with then gradually throughout as the year was ending we had our third hit single flashback everyone's thinking they're from the uk and then that's when the the the, the press starts saying oh you know they're very camp they're very this they're the other you know the media they, they want to try and pull you down while if they see funkadelic or parliament or even open the fire they're not going to say the same situation while we then started to do shows with Earth, Wind, the Fire Anchor, and Cool the Gang who were, you know, saying, bigging us up and saying, wow, you know, like, you guys are really hot. We love what you do, blah, 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 blah. And they were from America. While in the UK, the media, not the audience, which is a different situation, the media starts to write. And they do that with everyone. They do that with every, you're, you're, you know, having it for a while. It's, it's an English situation they t- they, they want to put you down, but then they still want to own you if you're doing well elsewhere. Yeah. And um, I didn't really dance the tune of what they wanted me to do. I was always rebelling. I was always rebe- you know, with the record company, I was rebelling. I just thought we didn't have enough budget, you know, and we didn't, we didn't have the budget that we should have had for certain things. Um, and it was a fight. Um, you know, and I would say, why are you guys so cheap? And they hated me saying, that. I said, you're so cheap. We should be getting, you know, we've, we've done this, we've done that. We've done it, you know, cause they're built, they'll build you up in one set, sense, but then they're trying to pull you down in another. So, um, it was a lot of life lessons, a lot of life lessons, but I didn't leave the situation with bitterness. I came in with what I left in, which was the talent God gave me and also be able to still continue doing what I wanted to do. Which some people unfortunately didn't. I didn't get into the drug scene. I wasn't into that kind of situation. We'd go out and get this and get drunk at the limelight later on, and you know, the clubs. But we were not. I didn't come from that body of people who you know, they always had my back. They we weren't into like, oh, let's should we get out of it, and you know. Plus, in the early early seventies, when I was a kid, and I'd seen things like Lady Sings the Blues, I started to read all these biographies of all these different artists, especially, and these are black artists, and how a lot of them had descended and, and it stayed in my mind. It stayed in my mind. I said, I don't want to end up like that, you know? And I'd say if, if I got pissed or something one night, I'd say, Oh my God, I'm having a Billie Holiday moment or something. You know, this is no, this can't be like that. You know, I got to make sure the next day I'm together, you know? So I always had this little third eye speaking to me, you know, and stuff like that.
1: Do you think, I mean, I want to just mention drive again, because I think it sort of fits into everything I want to say here. If I think about my own drive, and Mm. I'm a writer today, and I was an MTV presenter, and I, my drive, I think, came from the fact that, okay, the 70s and 80s were shit. If you were black... If you were gay, if you were a woman, you know, there was misogyny, there was racism, there was homophobia. It was everywhere. You know what oh, I mean? Mm, now, mm. I don't want to compare myself as a, uh, as a white gay man to oh, a black man because there isn't a comparison. But there is a comparison in one sense, I think. And that mm. is that um, I felt very outside the society when I was growing oh. up. Because of, because of my sexuality, that I wasn't mm. part of the mainstream, and I didn't have those symbols that you were saying as well. I didn't have that mm. mirror. And if the mirrors that I had were like these, those old, very queeny comedians that I didn't see myself as, you know, <laughs> exactly. way, yeah. But it's not, you know, what I was sort of thing or what I felt I was. And so, I think when I, on a, when and when I started with MTV, MTV said, "We need to talk about whether you can be gay." Mm. You know, and this is MTV, in yeah. 1987. Yeah. And the yeah. whole of the 80s was a bit shit in that way. And I remember having a, a black boyfriend, and we could never get a cab if we stood together. So we used mm. to have this technique where he'd hide right in the corner, and I'd get the taxi, so we'd get mm. And mm. that's when I mm. thought, shit, you know, I thought it was hard yeah. to be gay. It was not stop. A lot harder than that. I mean, and and I think, you know, what you had to go through and achieve, must have been an immense drive and a responsibility in a way. You feel- Totally, totally.
2: So I I tell you, um, one of the things I was talking to my mate, Leroy Logan, who's um, um, portrayed in the Steve McQueen Small Act series and Tyrone Huntley portrays me, which is interesting. Which is really, I I didn't think that anyone, I reached this age where someone's actually portraying me, which was uh, a, a thrill, but, I was talking talking and said, don't you remember those days when the Black Mariah would be driving down the road and they would stop you and stop and search. Now, I used to be doing those gigs in Brixton and I'd come on the Victoria Line to to Stroud Green Road at Thinsbury Park, get out, walk up and be stopped seven, eight, nine times to the point where... They knew where they knew it was me. I was Sim again because he has this little plastic bag. And I I, I remember I had this plastic bag was which said P A K Butchers, Pack Butchers. And I had this cassette tape always in of all my tapes and my music sheets and everything. And they said, I was sim again. All right, get in. And they take me home to the top of the end of my road. But then there were other times when I had to dodge in and out of streets. If you saw them, you you hid and then you moved out. And it was like it was a fear because you thought, oh my God, they'll stop me that, you know, throw me in, the, in the, wherever. So you had that. Then you had a situation is like when we were going out to the club scenes um, and like my mate Leroy was driving, we'd get stopped or we'd be watching to make sure police is going past us, but they would just
1: stop us, you know, um, it's and- It's wider racism that that music of that era, and this is what you're doing with, with flashback the movie, um, you know, the, yeah. the music of that era, Uh, wasn't, wasn't at the time given enough respect and airtime, because it was black music. and You know, I can imagine one of the reasons that you want to do this documentary is, is to say, hang on a minute, this is, you know, like when people, they talk about today, you know, if you're gay, you want to rewrite history, if you're black, you want to write history. No, we want to tell the stories that were real and they should be told do you know what
2: i i i'm i didn't even need the blm or any other group to rewrite this i've been working on this for over a decade so the situation i started this in 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 um 20 whatever it was and um it was initially my co-producer who's french was wanted to do an imagination documentary and i i was kind of like oohing and Ring, and I said, okay, let's try it. But I want to co-produce it and direct it and be part of the whole thing. So we said, yes, whatever you want. So we worked out a deal. And then I started to interview people. And then I, started, and then I stopped and I said, let me get somebody else to do the interviews to start with. So we get a, a fresh outlook. Um, so we interviewed a few different people, blah, 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 blah. blah. And then I started to listen to, and when I was in the studio, listen to all these different stories. And I thought, this is bigger than imagination. This is more this. I said, some of these stories will never, ever be told, or you no one will ever get to hear it if we don't widen this whole situation here and let people know where it comes from, where it happens. And, but also in a positive note, not like in a negative note. So then I said, right, let's change the whole thing. I want to do it about Black music, black, uh, British Black music. And um, my co-producer was like, "Oh, okay, it's a you know, okay, cool." So he thought, "Oh, we just do a little bit of the '60s, the '70s, the '80s," and that's what everybody thought. But in my mind, I thought, "No, we have to reach back and we have to reach forward." And somebody said to me, uh, a director a producer said to me, "It's going to take you eight, nine years," and I said, "No, you're joking! No, no, no!" He said it will he said there's there's all these different hurdles that you have to get through and um and then you're going to stop and then you're going to start again and then um and he was right because trying to get certain interviews with certain artists they weren't always available um some people had success and then they didn't have success anymore so all of a sudden they wanted to do an interview with you
1: um, what what were the surprising funny. stories that you were told, things that shocked you? Could you give me one example of something where you just went, "Oh my god, you know that's, that's amazing it wasn't
2: it, was, it wasn't really that it was shocking because i I knew I've, I've, I've been on the road all my life, so you know since a kid so it wasn't I couldn't really say that anything was so shocking what there were wonderful stories you know I mean Elaine del Mar, who's a jazz singer who's my father um, was working with um, Snake Hicks Johnson in the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, he basically um, survived a bombing. The whole band he was in all died except him. And that was the Café de Paris. So Snake Pick Johnson's died. Everybody else died, but he survived it and uh, then formed his own band. Uh, and uh, she tells some wonderful stories. So those are interesting. Lavi Sifri, who never does interviews, um, uh, extraordinary um, musician and, and, and person. Eddie Grant, who I interviewed, who I knew as a kid, you know, um, he told me they made it in Germany first because there was the outlet. You know, when they were in the, when he was in the equals of Baby Come Back before it came, you know, before it actually came out came um, became a hit over in the UK, Britain following yet again. You know, it's it's there were so many stories of I mean, I've interviewed people from sound systems, the DJs, pirate radio, people of um, um, from the classical field. we got that's where how far I went back to the early days of classical music. Um, Nadine 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 Thompson Thompson I think uh, no Shirley Thompson is a classical conductor a female black conductor who's done some fantastic arrangements um, and she introduced me to a world I didn't even realise existed of classical black composers uh, which we've now put in the in the documentary um, to the point where you know we 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 got into grime and dubstep, which is a, all derivative of, of reggae and of the UK reggae scene of Lovers Rock. But then also we have the Brit funk scene and the club scene. And then, you know, we had the acid scene, you know, the house scene. Um, there's so many, you know, the acid jazz people, you know, I interviewed. I literally went through that period of talking about Normski when he had his show because it was derived from, they saw MTV and thought, wow, we, we have to change our, our, our look on TV to interviewing one of the Cleopatra's, first black young group to have a uh, cartoony sort of show. Um, so I've had some extremely diverse people and um, we're nearly to the point of now finishing it. Um, but it's, it's interesting
1: because you talk about this and, it, and it's, an, it's again the expansion of musical horizons, isn't totally it? I mean, you're going it's almost like, your very young youth in new york it's, yeah. it's again you're suddenly dis- it's well let's say rediscovering you've probably known most of it but you're rediscovering and maybe discovering something new there as well is it mm-hmm. has it always has it helped you led you to new musical styles that you want to experiment in yourself oh, because yes. i know like you've done a this jazz album. Your your voice is so beautiful on that album. I mean, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, I'm and- proud of that album.
2: I'm very very. I'm more proud of that album than I am of the imagination albums because um, one, I had control. Not saying I didn't have control with imagination albums. I did because I was writing all of the all of the, the songs uh, along with Steve and Tony. But with this album, it was like jumping into the pool. And Stefan Parolo, who is um, my co-producer of the making of DVD, because he said, Ali, if you want to do this album, you have to do a DVD, a you know, making of, because this is going to be the future. I said, no, what, what making of? This was like 2004. And he says, yes, check this out. And he showed me, because in France, where I'm very huge, and France led me to Africa, South America, France is a huge territory. It's much bigger than the UK. And there's a lot of diversity. And, I, and creativity, and I found that you, I can do so many different things. So when I come back here, I'm kind of like a snob in the UK because I'm kind of like, well, you know, I'm like, I've got a song coming out with classic Bertrand in Belgium soon. I've got a track with uh, Jorge Vasilo from Brazil at the end of the year. I've just done the Gorillas. So I've, you know, it, it, but it's because I've done other things that are accessible. And like Damon, he loves some of the stuff I did in France. So and he knows it because he is me here, they play me every day. But when I did the jazz album, it was like, um, I was gonna jump into the ocean from a high cliff. And what I had to do <clears throat> was go back to that little boy in 1974, was listening to Lady Sings of the Blues and Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan's album where she sang My Funny Valentine. And then I thought, let me rediscover all of this. How can I do this? So I watched, um, there's a video story of jazz. It was a box set, and I just it engulfed everything. Um, and it, it started with, you know, Bessie Smith and Robert um, Johnson, and up to the day, up, up to the, the, the bebop area, to, to, to Miles J- Davis, to Herbie, all the way up to, um, to today. And I just listened to it and threw it all away. And they said, right now, what do you want to do? And so, therefore, I had a selection of songs that I had, and I basically changed some of them into a jazz mode. Some of them had a bit of r and sensibility about it, but I wanted to I wanted to, to have that natural feel. So, for example, um, there's a track called "You Never Know" in Thin Line, where uh, I was listening to Erica Badu and their her interpretation of stuff, and I said I like the way she's lyrically saying the story. So I thought, I can do something like that. You know, you get up with an angry hair, the same as when you went to bed. Was it um, my, my brain can't think now. But it, it basically, it's a, you're telling a story like you're talking to somebody, but I love that idea. It's, it had a different poetic reference. So it gave me a different chance creatively. So I did that. And then even to the point where <clears throat> I, I always loved Strange Fruit, the, the holiday song, but I wanted to do my own version and one thing that i remember dipping back into my past again and bringing it forward was years 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 ago as a kid on black and white tv and i knew i'd heard it and seen it but didn't realize who it was and i found out i remember seeing this woman singing it not billy Holiday, in black and white tv and it stunned me and it was uh, cleo lane and it stayed with my mind. And I just loved just the way she formed her own words and phonetically and so. So I just thought, that's what I must do for my own way, my own intonations, my own feel of it. And um, it went on from then. The, uh, the the uh, tracks like Jazz and mataz where I harmonized and things like that, it took me back to the bebop era and all that kind of stuff where I loved all that kind of sound. Um, I got that chance to exhibit different sides of what I could do. And I had lots of success in France and other areas in the UK. There was a controversy because of the person I was on the, a certain person that was on the same label as me and, uh, they don't push black jazz singers in the UK. That was, that's the, you know, they, someone like myself. And then there were some people, oh, you've done a jazz album. Oh, how dare you? You know, it's like, are you doing an imagination jazz, singing imagination jazz songs? And, trying to box me and I'm thinking no you know I'm kicking out then it was very hard because there were some agents that thought well you know I'll book his imagination but I'm not sure I'm gonna book use the jazz then I had other people said well I'm gonna take you on you know I love what you're doing come on and I developed a completely new audience um, who now weren't probably into imagination but they're now into me doing the jazz so now when I do my shows I get both because I can merge the two, but it was a, it was a fight and a, and a battle, and it, it, it's a situation of why can't I be diverse and do different things? And then this is the same situation when I in, was interviewing different artists, the same thing they went through, and some of them had to go into acting, had to do, um, you know, for example, um, Nadia Katush, Nadia Katush. I don't know if you know who she is. Mm-hmm. But Nadia Katush was like a folk singer in the '60s, and she. Um, came around the same time as Cleo Lane and she was singing at that time and I knew the name my mother knew, knew the name and um Madeline Bell knew who she was um, but it turned out she was the, the uh, mother of Mike Lindup from Level 42 the only black member in the group you know so um, it was interesting to hear her journey but I couldn't put all of that in the film. The problem we have in Flashback, there's so much stuff that you can only talk of a genre and pick one person from that genre and then move on. Otherwise you're there for 18 hours. So, you know, so in, in doing that and then also um, having the experience of filming myself for the jazz album, it gave me, all of a sudden I became a film director and then I went on to do, um, I did three documentaries for SOS Children: one in Zambia, one in Tunisia, one in um, South Africa.
1: You also uh, released the book, didn't you? With, 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 I, did, I did. I did. Have I haven't got it. Yet? Yeah, I did. I've ordered something. it. It hasn't come yeah. yet. From within the
2: heart. Within
1: <laughs> the heart. Thank you. Thank
2: you. All the money goes to the charity. All the money goes to the charity. You know. Let me know. Email what me. What does it give definitely. you?
1: What does it give you doing something for charity? Do you know what I mean? Because there's always there's. Um, I don't mean you. You don't do that to get something but oh. whenever you do something which is you know of value to other people oh. there's oh. something you get a sort of payback don't you so I just wonder what well what you, could, is- if, you know the world is funny how we are born
2: I the first thing I thought I could be in that person's place it could be me there could you imagine it could be me there suffering having that suffering so why wouldn't I that's the first thing I think I you know, and the second thing is I I always think I've been blessed and gifted that I can travel and through the music it's brought me to help these people. So it's and it's easy for me to do. It's not a problem to do it. So I think if I get the opportunity and the chance, I jump on it. So when I'm doing certain shows, for example, we went to Brazil a few years back, and I managed to go to SOS there and heightened the fact that I am an ambassador for SOS so that for that raised money. We went to, to uh, Mozambique in um, February last year, just before lockdown. The same thing. Um, the promoter didn't realize how strong I was with SOS. And so what happened was the press and the TV all followed me to this village with the kids. And I said, Well, right, okay, you're doing all this. Let's raise some money. You know, because, and, and um, it it, it, it it makes your heart, it's good for your heart to, to, to do something like this, but I, I do it because of my feeling and my, you know, and that I've been lucky and blessed that I can do it. And, and so when I get the chance, if I can, I can, you know, and, 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 and that's it. It's, and, and filming it gave me um, seeing the environments that these kids were in, especially in Zambia, when we went We did a whole thing. It's online, I don't know if you've seen it, the SOS children in Zambia, it's on YouTube. And you can see the journey we went. I took my, my band on this funny bus that we were on. And you see other people, how they grew up in their different environments. And, um, and uh, you know, it, it, it touches my spirit. The house mothers that look after all these kids and everybody that volunteers their time and energy, their strength and their faith, how they devoted they are to doing it. Um, and, that inspires me, that gives me an injection. It's like, wow, they really, you know, do it. And and it, it's a separate, it separates you from this this world that we're in because there's so much frivolity, there's reality television and people who are, you know, they're in, they're into needy, needy, you know, me, 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 And then you, you you see that, which is a complete different side of it. And it brings you back to a sense of reality. And I'm, I'm just a person who's do my thing. I get on the train and I'm, you know, like I was saying to Archie the other day, my manager saying, right, we're on a new train now. The old trains left at the station because you know th- that was pre-COVID. Now we're on a new new t- new train. And we just have to keep being as positive and uplifting as we can, even though it's really hard. And my career hasn't just been ups and downs like, Ooh, and the music and lights. There's been tips. You know, there's been my manager died <clears throat> in the early 90s, which was very devastating. Um, and uh, other people that were part of my, my, my life passed away as well. Um, and it was, you know, there were certain points. So now we're in the COVID period. It it reminded me, and I've talked to this to some people, it reminded me, and it's not the same when the AIDS pandemic first started, because people were comparing the AIDS pandemic to, no, I was comparing the AIDS pandemic to this period because I was saying, you've got people that were very ignorant about AIDS. Then you've got people that are ignorant about taking the injection. You know, you have people telling people, look, this is what's happening. You need to know. You've got people telling people this is what's happening to know. And, and, and it's, it's the combustion. Yet they will go out and do that. They will go out and do that here as well in the both periods of time. And, um, and you, you see how the governments are now all worrying. You know, and and it's because people don't listen. They don't think ahead of time. um, And they're not all for the people, it's all about money. They're thinking, okay, we give an injection and uh, we're not getting any money from it. Then why are we giving it away for free? You know, things like that. So all of a sudden you become, you even if you didn't want to become politically aware, you are part of the the politics, so to speak.
1: Um, And I think that was, you know, my point about the eighties and the seventies that you had to, if, particularly if you were in some form of minority, you were, you had to become political because you had no choice. Yeah. It's like yeah. part yeah. of being in your blood. Uh, what I want to end with, which you, you said, I, I presume you live somewhere around Turnpike Lane. <laughs> you were mentioned in Turnpike Lane. Do you still live around? Oh, there? no, or no, you no. you lived no, there I was,
2: No, basically, oh God, I lived in North London. I lived in Finsbury Park. And um, then we lived in Hornsey. And then when I thought, right, body talk's breaking. I'm going to be a big star. Wow, you know, I'm going to live on my own. And my mom said, let me live on your own. I said, yeah, I need to. So a friend of mine said, oh, we got a, um, we've got a, a room in the house. Some school friends who um, bought a house. And another friend was a designer. Um, he just actually designed some of the imagination stuff. And he said, oh, you know, um, Abby, a friend of ours, got a room. You know, come there. So that was in uh, near the Tottenham football grounds. Right. And so um, I lived there for a while and then I ended up living in Hendon, which was completely different, you know. So, um, but North London has, uh, has always been, I say, my base in a sense, though so I'm in Northwest London now.
1: Yeah, when I moved to London, I moved to Dongola Road, which is off West Green Lane. West Green Road, West, West Green Road. Is it, yeah. It? yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. so, so I know that area quite, quite well. There used uh, to
2: be the West Green Road Community Centre around there. But yeah. My mom. My mom. Oh, you said I talked when you mentioned Turnpike Lane. My mom's community center, the Afro Caribbean Center, is near Turnpike Lane. It's right near there, and uh, right now it's in disrepair. They're they're helping raising money to um over well, the the, the council supposed to fix it up because uh, it's the hub for the community. You know, it's been there for so long, but there's a lot of politics with the stuff, stuff stuff going on. And as as you rightly said, when we were um. And actually, when I was speaking to Leon yesterday, my friend Leon, who's doing his thing about the dancing, it, it was a fight. It was always a fight. Even when we were doing TV, promoting, we made it look like it was fun, it was love, we're having a great time. But I was watching um, Live at the Dominion. You can go on YouTube, it's going to be there for a while, but it's going to go. And our first live tour. We sold out seven nights, and actually we got an award. So there. seven nights, um, eight shows at the Dominion Theatre in London. No British black band had done anything like that, none. Even today, I don't don't see anyone like that, you know. But no one knew, no one made anything about it. It was like, oh, okay, but it was a big deal. And we did it twice. And um, I was watching the performance because a keyboard player, the other day was saying he hadn't seen it. I said, oh, go online, da da da." So I said, you know what, I'm gonna watch this because we're doing a 40th anniversary album, which is coming out next year. It's gonna be like uh, 14 albums, three or four of them with unreleased stuff, some live stuff, some rules. It's gonna be really, really cool. And some shows that we're gonna put in. And um, so I was listening to all these different tracks and stuff I hadn't listened to for years. So as I was doing this, I just clicked on the YouTube to watch this Dominion Theatre and watched myself. And then I was surprised that myself, seeing myself there, I thought, oh my God, wow. And I, then I was speaking to Mel Gaynor from Simple Minds, who's been drumming for us for a long time. And he said to me, you know, I loved it. I loved that show. New. And, I, and I, I said to him, I was so serious. I was very serious. I had to get it right. Even I'm singing the sexy songs and the I was all the way through. I'm serious. I'm laughing at a few little bits and pieces, but because I knew the camera was there and everything, I had to be serious. I had to be strong. I had to be tough. I had to be on it. And um, and then I watched another episode, which is completely different. Uh, maybe a year later, we're in Los Angeles, and we're on Sol- the, the 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 program called Soul Train, which is presented by Don Cornelius, and Marvin Gaye was on the same show. And basically, Don Cornelius says something like, this is the man that gives, this is the group that Marvin Gaye gives his stamp of approval. And I thought, wow. And then when I watched my performance, we did Changes and we did Just an Illusion. And when, when I'm watching my performance, my shoulders are out here. And I'm like, on your march, get set, go, bam. There again, that face is serious, strong. And I'm, by the time we finished the routine, I'm like out of breath, but it's so serious and it's so strong. I thought, you know, that's probably how I look back at myself. I think, you know, you, you had a lot on your shoulders. You had to really maintain. So you could, they, even though it looked like we're joking and having fun, we were and having fun and laughing and stuff. It was serious. It was, it was always like, it was work. It was like, get it right make sure you're on point. And that's what I see in the Dominion do you understand what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It
1: was, like, it wasn't... yeah. But, I mean, what well, I just finally like to say because I think what's really fascinating is that you've you've you had sort of one massive career that opened into so many, mm-hmm. um, and it opened up so many uh, avenues in your in your life, and I think that's really fascinating. You're not someone who's like looking back at a high point and that was it you're someone oh. who's had the high point and it's carried on in different ways oh, because God. the most important thing as a human is to keep developing and creating and that's what you've done and it i really is. appreciate it that.
2: is i mean yeah you, i too. had thank you i mean i've had some really good high points and you know i still get excited you know the gorillas you know has was a number one on itunes the track i did the lost chord um in every decade, I've always had something. You know, I had number two in, in the 90s with the Mighty Power of Love. That was with Moo to Swing, with i introduced. We had a number one with Instinctual, which introduced David Morales. Um, I did something with, um, and what's the name again, DJ Fantasy, which was uh, Mind, Body and Soul, big UK garage record. Then um, there' are always something, the DJs always love me. They always want me to do something. So it's fun and it re-innovates. So I think in doing that, so it's, it's fun to do it as long as you enjoy it. And as long as there's a little bit of melody going on with the beats, then I'm happy, you know, so, and harmony.
1: And that's it for this full length interview with Lee John. I'll see you next Thursday for Throwback Thursdays and every Monday for a new podcast interview.